Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you to right now picture Jesus. Just in your mind, mentally, get an image of Jesus in your head. Now, I'm guessing for most of us, it's probably pretty similar. You know, a guy in a robe and he's got sandals, he's got the beard going. Maybe you see him on the cross, maybe not, I'm not really sure. But I'm sure it's a little bit different person to person, right? So hopefully you didn't picture this guy right here, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. Because uh, Jesus is Semitic, like Middle Eastern, like probably didn't look much like that, looked more like that guy right there. And so, uh, I don't know, but either way, when you get an image of Jesus... Uh, something comes to mind, and, and it changes person to person. Like, there's probably no uh, movie clip in history that captures that any better than Talladega Nights, right? So you remember what, right, when Ricky Bobby has to pray, he has to say grace before the meal, and he likes to pray to little baby Jesus, and I could explain it, but it's so much better to watch. Enjoy this. this hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Your tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. <laughs> Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band and I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. Hey Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes ma'am. <laughs> hey Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes ma'am. I'll tell you what, I, uh, hopefully that is a humorous way of highlighting. I don't, I don't mean to be irreverent but I want to highlight the fact that all of us get different images in our mind and, and you know what? Maybe they all, even the one you thought of, maybe they all are inadequate. Maybe they all fall short of capturing him. Maybe even what you pictured in your mind is irreverent. Because in our story, as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, in our story today, a handful of the disciples are going to get their minds blown by getting a much, much bigger, much more pure image of exactly who Jesus is. We're in chapter 9 of Luke, and today we come to the passage that is commonly referred to as the transfiguration. And let's pick up the story in verse 27. It says this, Jesus was speaking, and he said, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You can pause there. Whoa, wait a minute. Jesus is saying, there's some alive, when he's saying this, that would not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now, when did that happen? Like, did Jesus mess up some prophecy here? Nope, Luke says now, about eight days after these saying, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a, the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him 
were heavy with sleep. But when they had become fully awake, they saw his glory and the, two, uh, and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. Oh, Peter, such a good guy. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and, as, uh, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, we have the phrase, a mountaintop experience. Can I suggest that that might be one? <laughs> I mean, literally, they went up on a mountaintop, but metaphorically, like that is the mountaintop experience of all time right there. They're up on a mountain with Jesus. Now, why'd they go up the mountain? Let's just catch one point real quick. Jesus wanted to go up on a mountain to get recharged, refreshed. It says that. So he went up on a mountain to pray. Why? Because in context, Jesus had just predicted his death. He knows that he is marching toward Jerusalem and the cross, and he's got to fill his tanks before he does that. So he gives us a model that we can follow. Look at these four things. He goes to a desolate place. He goes to prayer to talk to God. He goes to fellowship, right? He takes Peter, James, and John, not all 12 of the apostles. This is like his closest friend, the, the inner circle of apostles, and as if that's not good enough fellowship, hey, let's kick in Moses and Elijah. Why not? Like, that's pretty good fellowship right there. And, and then he, God speaks. He hears from God. He goes to the Word of God. So I want to suggest to you then that if you're in a place where you need to be spiritually recharged, maybe you follow that pattern. Get to a desolate place, right? Pray, fellowship with fellow believers, and then hear from God through His Word. It's a good pattern. Jesus is demonstrating that for us, and, and so he gets recharged. Well, Jesus doesn't just get recharged. Jesus gets transfigured. So in that moment, uh, God kind of peels back the curtain, just a crack, and we are able to see that Jesus is amazing. So what Peter does in that moment is blows it, as Peter's always doing, right? Peter just foot in the mouth every time. So what he does, Peter, in response to this huge vision of Jesus, he thinks, oh, I know, this is the moment I should start to tell Jesus what we should do. So there he is telling Jesus, no, like, does that just strike your ears funny, telling Jesus what we should do? And yet, don't we do that all the time? We try to tell God what should go down, how this should work. That's what Peter is doing. Now, we can get down on Peter and the other two apostles in this scenario. I want to be a little bit kind to them, though. Listen, they are just two years out of being professional fishermen, right? They've been walking with Jesus for less than two years. And so they don't get it all yet. How many in here have been walking with Jesus less than two years? Less than a few of you? Raising, okay. Few. I want you to imagine that's you that went up the mountain. Okay? Right? Like we've got these apostles in this super spiritual apostolic category. These guys are just two years old in the Lord. Let's be a little bit gentle, a little bit kind. And not only that, here they are, they wake up and they see Jesus glowing and there's two dead dudes with him, right? Like we want to get down on Peter, but like you would have nailed that moment? Seriously. 
And not only that, they're tired. They've climbed a mountain, so they're sleepy. They fall asleep. They wake up. They're groggy. And there's Jesus glowing, talking to two dead dudes. That's a wild experience. Walk a mile in their shoes. I mean, just before, they just figured out that he's the Messiah. They just got to that level, and God cranked it up another notch. Oh, no, he's way, way, way more than just that. These guys are reeling, reeling. And what they do in that moment, they get a glimpse of glory. And that's what I want us to get today. They get a glimpse of glory. After all, Moses is one of the guys there, right? You remember that Moses got a glimpse of glory at one point. For those of you who aren't familiar with Old Testament history, that's fine. We all learn over time. Don't worry about it. Exodus chapter 34. Moses asked God, he says, can I get a glimpse of your glory? And God gives it to him. And it's overwhelming. So much so, Moses' face would shine when he would meet with God. Okay? He would come back from meeting with God, and his face would be shining. So he had to wear a veil so as not to freak out the people. All right? Now, Moses' face would shine because it was like the moon. Have you ever seen the moon shine? No, you haven't. Only the sun shines. The moon, the moon doesn't have light. It just reflects the light of the sun, right? And so Moses' face, he doesn't have light in himself. The light of God shone upon him and it radiated off him like the moon. That's Moses. What about Jesus? Is he sun or is he moon? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, this is what it says about him. It says, he is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Get a glimpse of glory today. This is who Jesus is. When we study Luke, and this kind of itinerant rabbi guy is walking around, we're talking about this guy right here. He is the one that upholds the universe by a word of his power. If he stops thinking of us, we're done. And he is, not the, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is not the moon. He is the sun. Not only is the S-U-N son, he is the S-O-N son. He is the son of man. Son of man is the most common title that Jesus applied to himself. And as we get a bigger glimpse of his glory today, I'm going to take you right back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, and that is what that is in reference to. Look at this. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. Okay, pause there. I love that title, ancient of days, for God the Father. And so what you have is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, coming before God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. I'm sure the Spirit's right there, right? And it says, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. With whom does God share his glory? No one. Son of man has the glory. He's God. We have the Trinity on display right there. Shares his glory and his dominion and his kingdom. So what's going on is you get a glimpse of the glory of who Jesus is right now. We find out that God is peeling back that curtain a little bit and we see exactly who he is a little bit more. Now, Peter and James and John are up there. Those three apostles, right? John 
would actually get more of a, a full picture of the glory of Jesus a little bit later on in life. As one of the 12 apostles, they all experienced persecution. John would be, he, all kinds of junk would happen to him, but one of the things is he would be abandoned on a des deserted island as like prison, an island called Patmos. And while he's there, he got a vision from God. It's called Revelation. It's in the back of your Bible. The last book is a revelation given to John. And at the very beginning of that book, in chapter 1, verse, uh, let me see here, verse 12, it says this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Pause for a second. I want you to hear, like, hear that. Think, what, what would that have sounded like? Just his voice. It goes on to say, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the appropriate response right there. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's Jesus. I highly doubt that's what you pictured in your mind today. We're all a little bit irreverent, aren't we? All our images of him are a little bit inadequate. Take that, Ricky Bobby. A little off, bud. You see, understand, to see Jesus is to see the kingdom of God. And we started out in verse 27, and Jesus said, there are some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then eight days later, the transfiguration. It's not a coincidence how Luke set that up. To see Jesus is to see the kingdom of God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Get a glimpse of his glory right now. And I'll tell you what, as if Jesus' transfiguration is not enough, there's Moses and Elijah right with him. What is that about? Let's talk about Moses and Elijah for a second. Because you understand, Moses lived 1,400 years prior to this mountaintop experience. Elijah lived 900 years before the transfiguration. What are they doing there? Moses equals the law. Moses is the law. Okay, that's what he represents. Elijah represents the prophets. And so with Moses and Elijah, you have the law and the prophets. That is a shorthand way of saying the entire Old Testament. Everything in redemptive history that has happened prior shows up to point the way to Jesus. They're all pointing at Jesus. The law, you know what the law does? The law says you need Jesus. Because we try to keep the law and we, we can't do it, can we? We don't even come close. The law says you need Jesus, and the prophets come in and say, don't worry, he's coming. The law and the prophets are pointing toward Jesus. Moses and Elijah are right there. And the three disciples, Peter, oh my goodness, buddy, he missed it. He goes, hey, I know, let's make you guys three tenths. Let me tell you the problem with the three tenths approach that Peter has here. His plan is, is problematic on really two points. The first point is this. 
it makes those three equals. It makes Jesus and Elijah and Moses, it makes them equals. And, and in fact, I think I have a slide for that. And the next one. And there we go. Okay, so makes those three into equals, okay? So that, that's the problem right there. Now, listen, if, Peter is a Jew, okay? And so for any good Jew to have access to Moses and Elijah, do you know how mind-blowing that is? Moses and Elijah are here? Listen to those guys. No, listen to Jesus. Because Moses and Elijah, they're just bit actors, they're just doing a cameo. They're not a big deal. Jesus is on the scene. Already in chapter 9, it's been speculated twice that Jesus is just one of the prophets. And the answer is no, he's not. It struck me earlier this week that Jesus is not listed in Hebrews 11. For those of you who know, some of you don't. Listen, Hebrews 11 is sometimes called the hall of faith. In that chapter about faith, it lists throughout redemptive history people who displayed wonderful, great faith. And so we call it the Hall of Fame. It's like the Hall of Fame, but faith, because we're Christians and we're really clever that way, right? Okay, so, so it's the Hall of Faith. Why isn't Jesus listed? Yes, he's God, but he was born in human flesh. Did any human being ever display more perfect faith than Jesus? He's not listed because he's not one among others. He's the one in whom we have faith. Get a glimpse of his glory today. Three tenths. Jesus does not live on a plane along with Moses and Elijah. He's not one among those three. What, what we have in Peter's suggestion, we have these three apostles pedestalizing three prophets. You understand that three apostles, in redemptive history, they are on par with Moses and Elijah. It should not have been three pedestalizing three. It should have been five worshiping one. That's very different. And, and yeah, it gets me a little bit feisty today. And let me tell you why. Because I am talking about the glory of my Lord and some people want to put him in a tuxedo t-shirt? Seriously? You want to coddle him like he's a little baby? You want to put him in just another tent alongside two holy human prophets he does not belong there instead what we should do is fall down before him as a dead man and worship him and that will happen that will happen that time is coming remember uh, not john the apostle but john the baptist pointed at jesus and said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world jesus is the lamb he's the perfect sacrifice and so when John the Apostle is on the island of Patmos, he gets more revelation. And so let's go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. This time is coming. Listen, it says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. 
I hope you get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus as we think of him as this hippie rabbi, itinerant preacher guy. No, 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 that's, that's Jesus right there. That's why we gather every Sunday. That's why we'll even push through Snowmageddon to get here because that guy deserves our worship. He's our God. That's why we can't offer him lukewarm, half-hearted worship. It's just not right. So the first problem with the three-tenths approach is that it puts Jesus on a plane with two guys. He shouldn't be there. The second problem is this, that it ignores the mission. It ignores the mission. What's going on there is, is Peter saying, look, man, this is so great. I want to just pitch tents. Can we just stay right here? I love this mountaintop experience. This is so amazing. Let's stay right here. But understand, Jesus is on a mission. Remember, he is talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure. That's a weird way to put it. He's going to Jerusalem for his departure. What's he catching a flight? Doesn't it sound like that? Like, that's weird. Why did Luke use that? They're not, we know they're talking about his death. Why not say that? Why say departure? That's because the Greek word there is the word for exodus. Remember, Moses is on the scene. And what Moses did in the exodus is he led the Israelites who were in slavery in Egypt, he led them in an exodus, he led them in a departure and into the promised land. And what's that saying is Jesus, by being the lamb, the sacrifice, he is going to lead us who are in slavery to sin and death, he's going to lead us out toward the promised land. That's why. But the point is that in order to do that, he's got to go back down the mountain. He can't stay right here. We can't pitch tents right here. We can't ignore the mission. We got to go back down the mountain. The point is not to be here. This is just to be a recharging, a blessing so that we can go do that. Let's go. We got to go down the mountain. That's why we can't pitch tents, Peter. Now, they're going to go back down the mountain, but before they do, God is going to speak. Like, as if this experience isn't overwhelming enough. Like, Jesus is glowing, and then there's Moses and Elijah, and if it's not overwhelming enough, why not? God the Father is going to show up, manifest in a cloud, and speak. And what he's going to do is correct Peter again. And here's how that went down. The three apostles are telling Jesus what to do. Again, doesn't that sound silly? to tell Jesus what to do, and yet we do it all the time. But here is God the Father saying, hey, let me, let me weigh in on this. Because so far, the last couple, couple chapters, the, uh, the question on the table is, who is Jesus? We saw that in chapter 8 when Jesus stilled the calm, and calmed the wind and the waves in the storm, right? And the disciples said, who is this? And they got to shore, and the demons, they know exactly who Jesus is. And so they spoke out, we know who you are, Jesus. Son of the Most High God. And then just last week, we saw how King Herod was wrestling with, who is this Jesus? There's all these rumors going on. Who is this? And then the disciples were wrestling with the same rumors, and they were faced with the question. Jesus said, look, I know who the crowds say that I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter nailed it, and he said, you're the Messiah. But now we're finding out that he is much more than the Messiah. So, okay, Messiah, yes, but let's turn it up another notch, and let's give you the transfiguration so you understand he's far more than just that. He's the one to whom all worship is due. Get a glimpse of glory today. And so what you have in this moment, then, is God the Father says, okay, so-and-so spoke, and so-and-so spoke, but now God himself is going to testify. So the cloud shows up, and you hear this voice, and he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. 
After you get a glimpse of glory, the next thing you ought to do is listen to Jesus. Quit trying to tell Jesus who he is. Quit trying to tell Jesus what to do. You've got to look at him. You've got to listen to him. Why? Because a glimpse of glory is a piece of perspective. A glimpse of glory is a piece of perspective. Does anyone here doubt that when God said, listen to him, he wasn't saying, uh, gain some head knowledge about Jesus? Like, get a few facts so that you can win in Bible trivia. Or was he saying, adjust your life to him? You can imagine for a moment that Peter had a fight with his wife before going up the mountain. Peter was married. And he had a hard marriage, just like you, I'm sure. Some of you have experienced that. You've had a fight. Maybe you've had one recently. Somebody stormed out. Somebody slammed a door. That cloud that settles over the house for a couple hours, a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple years. Right? <laughs> You feel that? What if Peter had one of those just before he went up the mountain? And then he gets up the mountain and he sees Jesus in his glory. Do you think that glimpse of glory became a piece of perspective? Think that might have changed how he felt about what happened before he left to go up the mountain and how he might respond to his wife when he gets back? You see, we are in a hard world out in the mud, in the slush, in this valley. And it's broken and it's fallen out there and we're a part of it. We feel that. And what we need to have in mind is there, there's something higher and better. There is a glimpse of Christ's glory that is changing us so that we can deal with it rightly. A guy who preached on this passage, his name's Tanner Turley, uh, he said this, he said, His glory tells us there is something more, something higher and greater and purer, something beyond the trappings of this fallen and often tragic world. We were made to see the glory of Christ and live for his glory. Life will only make sense in the deepest and truest sense when we see and live for the glory of the God who made us. See, a glimpse of glory is a piece of perspective. And they're going to need it because they're about to go back down the mountain. And here's what that looks like. Let's pick up the story in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? <laughs> I, I want to think the disciples are like, hey, we can hear you. We're right here. Like, <laughs> that one hurts, Jesus. Jesus says, bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. See, they're still getting a glimpse of his glory, but you get the sense that all of a sudden, like the mountaintop experience, that's over. Now we're back into the filth and the mess and the difficulty. And I want to talk about that just a moment, but first let me tie off something. Like someone say, like, was this just epilepsy? Is that all this is? Listen, Jesus seems to be fairly discerning between what is demonic and what is sickness. 
And Jesus just said that this is demonic and he cast out the demon and the guy was healed. So if I have a choice of believing some modern liberal scholar or Jesus, one of those rose from the dead. I'm listening to him. All right? And so... So we've got to choose sometimes who we're going to listen to. The, the revisionist scholars, the modern liberal scholars, oftentimes what they'll say is, listen, these are just primitive people. It was just epilepsy. Poor people didn't understand. And so they just blame what they don't understand on a demon. That's all that's great. It's just epilepsy. And I want to say that, scholar, tell you what, bud. Uh, when you rise from the dead, let's get in touch. Maybe I'll listen to you then. And until then, safe money's on Jesus. Whether it was a demon or epilepsy, Jesus was able to heal with the word. I'm listening to him. And he said it was a demon. Now, one of the things we can take from that is this. Listen, Jesus won't always heal you of your epilepsy. I, I speak as a father of a... shouldn't have looked at her, sorry. Of a daughter who has epilepsy. And, and, and we prayed. And he hasn't healed her. Right? Because he's God, we're not. We don't tell him what to do. And we love him and he's good. He's good. And yet, if you are demon-possessed, and you are humble, and you are teachable, and you are repentant, and you go to Jesus, and you call out in true faith, Jesus, heal me, he will kick that demon out of your life every time without fail, without fail. And you understand, listen, like that's amazing. Really not. Really not. Because if you caught a glimpse of glory, you understand this isn't difficult. We're amazed at Jesus for what he does, but Jesus is like, that's low shelf, man. Listen, I had a, a guy who uh, taught me, discipled me when I was in college. His name was Tom Rohde. Tom used to talk about, to help us catch the, uh, an understanding of the incarnation of Jesus, God taking on flesh. He said, I want you to imagine that you, you wake up tomorrow morning and you're an ant. Right? You got your little antenna and all your legs and you're an ant. But you, you retain all your human abilities as an ant. And so when you tell your fe fellow ants, hey, listen, when it rains, we should go under the porch. And they're like, oh, he's so wise. It's not top shelf wisdom, right? And then they go, oh my goodness, did you see that? He lifted a whole crouton by himself. Not tough for us, right? Listen, when you get a glimpse of who Jesus is and his glory, when he kicks out demons, like that's not top shelf stuff. That's on the low shelf for Jesus. That's really, really easy. Get a glimpse of his glory and understand who he is. The point up on the mountain, because you, you know, like nine of the disciples, they were really frustrated. They couldn't do it, right? Nine of them were really frustrated. Just back at the beginning of chapter nine, Pastor Jared took us through it, where Jesus commissioned the apostles, sent them out, and they were kicking butt right out there, right? They were casting out demons, and they were healing sickness, and it was going great. Now they come back, and all of a sudden, they can't do it. What is going on with that? The point is that we are so fickle as human beings, but only Jesus is solid, only Jesus is glorious, and that's why we worship him the point up on the mountain is that Jesus is greater than the prophets. The point back in the valley is Jesus is greater than the apostles. It's all about Jesus. I want you to get a glimpse of glory today. I want you to know exactly who he is because a glimpse of glory must be a piece of perspective. And you're going to need it. 
And the reason why is because we need to go back down the mountain. We need to get busy, right? See, the mountaintop is a preparation, not a destination. It is a preparation, not a destination. It's preparation for the valley. I get that it was an amazing experience. Let's pitch three tents and stay here. No, we have a mission. We got to go back down there. And when we go back down, we find out that family and friends are having a hard time. There's people that need healed out there in the valley and there's ministry to be done. There's spiritual battle. We got to go. That's why I often use this story of the transfiguration when I have the privilege of leading a team on a mission trip. I use this story the very day before we go home because a mission trip has a mountaintop experience. And I got to say, guys, we're going back to the valley. Be ready. Be ready. Let a glimpse of glory be a piece of perspective, but we got to be prepared because the mountaintop is preparation. It's not destination. We're not supposed to pitch tents and stay there. Some of you have experienced that not only on mission trips, but what about our worship nights? How many of you have been to one of our worship nights here at Redemption? Are those things awesome or what? Oh my goodness, what a mountaintop experience. Don't you want to say, hey Gary, let's pitch tents and stay here. We're not supposed to. It's just supposed to be preparation, not destination, at least at this point in our history. What about these times right here in worship services? Why do we go through Snowmageddon to get here to gather in worship? Why do we do that? I'll explain it to you this way. Do you guys like to watch football? I love to watch football. I love it. Would you like to watch some football right now? All right, let's watch some football together. East right flop, V right on the outside, Y left, fake, 396 bag, V hinge, Z puck. Is that long enough for you? Don't you love watching football? Wasn't that exciting? Wasn't that great stuff? Now, some of you are like, why the Green Bay Packers? Listen, do you know how difficult it is to go online and find a clip of them in a huddle? That doesn't make the highlight reels. That's so difficult to find. It's because it's boring. We don't like watching the huddle. The huddle is when we put our chip in the dip, right? And we try to get our attention back to the screen when they come out of the huddle and go up to the line of scrimmage and say hike. The question is not what they do in the huddle. We don't care about that. The question is what they do in the huddle. Does that make a difference when they go back up to the line? In this right here that we're in, this is just a holy huddle. I hope in these moments we catch a glimpse of glory. But we're not supposed to stay in the huddle. We're supposed to go see if it can make a difference. We've got to go down the mountain into the valley. We've got to go out there and we've got to go be the church. Go do the work of the church. This is preparation. This is not destination. We're supposed to go back out there. But let's be honest about something. We can come in here and we get our little mountaintop experience and we get a glimpse of glory and then you know what happens? You, you go, you get in your car and you start to leave with your family and, and you start fighting with your family on the way home, right? How does he know? Who told him? <laughs> I know because I've been there, I get it. Man, we are so fickle and we are so lame. The point is that the lamb is glorious. You can't do it. Only the lamb could do it. Only the lamb did do it. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is the only one who deserves our worship. And I cannot wait till that time. There is a destination coming when we will get home someday and we will worship him. 
But make no mistake, that's why we gather in worship during these times. In a moment, we're going to go back to worship, and I hope you've caught enough of a glimpse of glory that you know to render him the worship that is due his name. But first, let me pray. Father in heaven, Thank you very much for sending Jesus. Thank you that uh, men like Luke recorded it so that we can study it. And yet we admit before you that as we read these stories, sometimes we forget that he is God. And that all worship him and will worship him. And we get some lower, some ridiculous view of Jesus. We repent of that right now. We ask you to give us a glimpse of glory. We need that because, Lord, we need to know that something's higher and better. We want a piece of perspective that changes us and prepares us so that we can go back down the mountain into this messy world and we can go out there and do the work of the church, which is out there, not in here. Prepare us during these times, please. And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.